Let's just come and hear from Gideon. Do you ever find yourself wondering how people can keep making the, the same mistake over and over again? You're wondering, how can they, they do that? How can they be so foolish? How perhaps can they keep on hurting themselves and others again and again? Well, I will remember many years ago a pastor friend of mine who was booked twice for speeding on the one day, on the outward and return leg of the same journey. You'll not be surprised to know that I laughed when he told me, but I wondered, you know, how could he do that? How could he be so daft? I mean, once in a day, maybe, but booked twice on the same day, on the same road. But my heart was a wee bit softened, and I began to understand that a little bit anyway, when I was living in Edinburgh, just when they put in those, I know they are necessary, but they're still horrible, speed cameras. And they used to hide them as well. That was the worst of it. Because I want to say that it got to the extent that if I caught the glimpse of a light anywhere, I began to slam on my brakes. And I have to confess that I was flashed by the lights on at least three occasions while there. I saw the light but it was the light that I did not want to see. I was never actually fined, but, you know, I saw the light, and I was watching my speed. But it was in those kind of off-guard moments when there was somebody I had to be, or when I was thinking of whatever it was that, that was lying ahead of me. It was then, without being aware of what was really happening, that the speed crept up, and I headed back into the danger zone. So you see, now I know, now I realize at least a little bit why it is that people make the same mistake sometimes again and again. It's because it's so easy, isn't it, to forget the hard lessons maybe of the past. And it's so easy after a little while just to slip back again into those old habits, those old ways. You see, that's what we find the people of Israel doing here in Judges chapter 6. Slipping back into their old ways. Slipping back into sin. And because of that, slipping back into disaster. What do we find in Judges 6.1? Just after Deborah's great song of praise to God. Just 40 years after God had again so wonderfully delivered them. What do we find? That again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And it's ridiculous, isn't it? It is amazing. But it's not unbelievable. For as we said, remember, we do the same. Again and again, we do the same. But let's just now look in a little bit more detail Uh, just what the situation precisely was that God's people found themselves in here, and also how the Lord began to deal with it. So we'll begin then with the situation of Israel. And their situation was that basically their sin had led them to a place where all they'd actually done was switch oppressors. For whereas before they'd been terrorized, by Caesarea, Jabin, and the, the Canaanite armies, now they're being terrorized by an alliance that was led by the Midianites. 
An alliance, verse 3, tells us of the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples. But let me just point out to you uh, a couple of facts about the Midianites here that I found very instructive and helpful. First of all, concerning their ancestry. For you see, the Midianites were actually descendants of one of Abraham's sons who were born to him by one of his concubines. So you see, it is a case here of Israel, God's people, being haunted by the sin of their fathers. And that's, I think, an important lesson for us to learn. That though when we come to God and when we confess our sin, when we repent of that sin, that sin then is always dealt with and is always wiped away by God, wiped out in the sense that he he no longer holds that sin against us. Yet, although that is true spiritually, however, at the same time, what we may have to deal with in our lives are the physical, the emotional, the mental repercussions of our sin. Just to give an extreme example, if we were to commit murder and then truly repent of that, then we would be forgiven, I believe, by God. But that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of our crime. Because we would. Of course we would. And so as I look at at Scripture, what I find as I look at the different incidents there is that sometimes God gives us the grace and resources to deal with these things, to deal with these circumstances, rather than just taking them totally out of our way. And so they then become the means of us spiritually maturing. But at other times as here, he even sovereignly uses these things. He uses them as disciplinary tools that throw us back upon him. The other interesting thing about the Midianites, as well as our ancestry, is is the actual methodology that here they use. The way that they they go about subjecting Israel to what was their their reign of terror. For basically, it was by means of the camel. Now that might not seem much of a secret weapon to us, but, you know, don't laugh too much. Let me point out one or two things about the camel that'll maybe get you going a wee bit. Some of them certainly you'll know, others perhaps not. One is the fact, I think we all know, that the camel is a great, big, heavy, ugly, bony beast. Not bonny, bony. Now, you know that, but, but think about it. Think how imposing it would then be if you saw a camel with those big yellow teeth charging towards you. Also, what's interesting is that this is the first time that it's documented in history that the camel was ever used in a military campaign. So you see then the Israelites, who themselves only had foot soldiers, they'd actually be the first army to have to face up to this. To see hundreds, we don't know, maybe thousands of camels charging out of the desert towards them. So what would have been anyway a frightening experience must have been even more so. And then you've got to take into account the capability of the camel itself, particularly its mobility and its hardiness. Because I tell you, I had some ideas about this, but I was amazed to discover as I read about this during the week that a camel 
can travel for three or four days with a heavy load on its back, it can cover in that time 300 miles and all without food or water. So you see, forget about an electric car, get yourself a camel, that's the answer. So you see, it wasn't just the, the charge of the camels that would be terrifying to the foot soldiers of Israel. No, it would be their ability, their ability to be seemingly here and there and everywhere, moving around. It's that that would be totally demoralizing. And you can see the advantage in this, can't you, for the, the Israelites, for the Midianites, sorry, and their allies. Because you see, they didn't have to waste time and resources and manpower in building forts to, to kind of hold the country. They have to encamp there. Now, all they had to do was sit back in their own land, just wait for the crops to come, and then race down and ravage the land of Israel. And they did this for seven years. Until we're told that like locusts, they'd stripped the land bare. Livestock, crops, food of any kind, all of it was almost gone. Now that was the situation of the people. And I could almost leave that at that, except there's, there's just one other thing that I want to point out to you before we move on. And that's just what the Lord did here when the people cried out to him eventually about this. Verse 7 it says, When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now, when you, you think about that, you would wonder, wouldn't you, just why the Lord sent a prophet to his people at this particular time? I mean, they'd already got to the point, we're told, of crying out to him. They'd already got to the point of turning to him. So why, when they've actually got to that point, bother to send a prophet? Well, I believe it's because of the vast difference that there is, and yet it's one that too often we fail to appreciate, the vast difference that there is between regret and repentance. You see, I believe the people here were sorry about their sin, but primarily because they were sorry about the situation their sin had got them into. You see, their world was still rotating around about themselves. Where God's people need to reach, though, is that point where their greatest sorrow lies in the knowledge of what their sin means to God. It's the fact that we, by our sin, have offended God. It's that that needs to cause us the greatest pain. It's that that needs to cause us the greatest heartbreak. For you see, that's repentance. And that is the place we need to get to before we can expect God to act and to deliver us from our sin. Of course, the, the great example of someone who, who'd reached that point, someone who realized just so clearly this distinction and who was then delivered by God. The great example of this is, of course, David. A man who committed adultery, who then had the man that he wronged murdered, who was sorry because of this, and yet 
who finally reached the point where he could say in Psalm 51 verse 4 in those famous and wonderful words, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But that though was the situation of Israel. Let's move on to look at the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord here, of course, the one who is to be used as the deliverer of God's people from this terrible situation, was Gideon, the famous Gideon. Well, let me just introduce what I want to go on to say to you about Gideon by means of a little story. And it's the story of a man who went to his psychiatrist with a problem. He said, Doctor, you must help me. Everything's going wrong. I feel worthless. My friends tell me I have a terrible inferiority complex. Can you help me? So the psychiatrist told him that he would give him some tests and evaluate him and then call him back. A week later, the man came back and the psychiatrist said to him, Friend, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is that we've proved beyond doubt that you do not have a complex. But the bad news is, you are inferior. Now, I tell you, (laughs) Gideon, as a man at this point in life, was certainly inferior, or at least he was living as an inferior. The tragedy was that he was actually a man of undoubted but at the same time here of unrealized potential. I mean, his name, which actually means hewer, suggests great physical strength. I'm sure a a name given to to Gideon because he was more, he was much more at birth than just a, a healthy, bouncing boy. This man had the potential to be one of those NFL linebackers. And yet here we find him, in verse 11, threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now you see, normally threshing took place out in the open. It took place in an exposed area near a field so that the wind would blow the chaff away. And normally it was carried out with a big threshing sledge that was was drawn by oxen. So substantial was the amount of wheat that they would expect to be harvested. Here, though, we're told, Gideon threshes his wheat with a stick in a wine press. A wine press, which basically was a, a hollow that was carved out of a rock with a channel for the juice to run down into a lower trough. And not only is this a wine press, it's also a hidden wine press, hidden away in the shadow of a tree. Now, what this tells us is not only the the miserable nature of of Gideon's harvest, but it also tells us of the terrible fear that gripped his heart here. And then we have the first statement made to Gideon by this, this angel of the Lord, who I believe, incidentally, was in fact the Lord himself, that this is one of those rare Old Testament appearances of God in human form, of Jesus And I believe this, based this on a number of factors, but certainly on the fact that this angel is called not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. 
But basically also in Gideon's reaction towards the end of this meeting with him, when he realized who it actually is, he's been sharing with verse 22. He says, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. You see, that's the reaction of a Jewish man who believes he's seen not an angel, but the Lord God himself. But look at his first words to Gideon in verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I do think you've got to see a bit of humor in these words. God certainly has a sense of humor, said as they are to a man who at this point is hiding, cowering in a wine press. And yet at the same time, surely these words here suggest the tremendous potential that God saw in Gideon. However, when you go on and analyze Gideon's reaction to this, you you soon see again that at this point in his life, he's far from operating. He's far from living as a mighty warrior, as a man of valor. Because his response is is all about buts and ifs and whys and hows. Verse 13, for example. But Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hands of Midian. You see here, Gideon believed in God's power in the past. But he had lost faith in him for the present to meet the challenges of the present. He felt as if God didn't care. He felt as if God had forgotten his people. Now, of course, actually, Gideon got it all wrong. He got it totally wrong. For the reason why the people were in the state they were in, the reason why Gideon was hiding in a winepress, wasn't because God had turned his back on them, but rather it was because they had turned their backs on him. It was because they'd sinned, they'd rebelled against him, and so it made it impossible for him to keep on blessing them. That's the problem usually when God's people hit rock bottom. But what I find most interesting about all this are the the tremendous parallels between Gideon's situation and his state of mind and spirit here and that that I believe we see in a number of believers also in our own day. You know, those who often appear to believe in God in theory and yet who seem to have little or no no expectation that they're going to experience him here in reality. People who seem to think that, that God's days of working in power to deliver and redeem his people are over, that the days of revival are over. Christians who, like Gideon, seem unable to, to lay hold by faith of the resources of God And so because of that, who live at a level that is so far below their birthright as sons and daughters of the living God. Well, just look then here at the way God addresses Gideon's problem. At the way God handles all his excuses and at the way God then through this turns all his life around. 
because I believe in that, we may well learn the lesson that we desperately need to learn. And what's noticeable is that God doesn't argue with Gideon about Gideon's view of Gideon. Now, what rather again and again God actually does is God states and he promises the promise of his presence and therefore the promise of his power. Look there in verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 16. I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites. You see, what we actually have here is a, is a classic pattern that's repeated again and again in the Bible and in life. Where the Lord brings a man or a woman to the point where they are ready to admit that they are totally inadequate in themselves either to be or to do what God desires. God brings us to that point and then when we get to that point, then the Lord breaks in. And he says to us, but turn to me and I will do it. Trust in me, have faith in me, and I will give you the strength that you so need and desire. I mean, just think of the, the men who God has taken to that point. There are so many within the Bible and so many we know outside of Bible times. In fact, I would say, there's no man or woman that's ever really been used by God who's not reached this point somewhere in their life. Abraham, Moses, David, Joseph, Peter, Paul, go on and on. They all got to the point of recognizing their own inadequacy for the task that lay in hand. And then they learned to put their trust in the Lord and only in Him. And boy, oh boy, once that happened, how God used them, how he used them. Now, some of you might think there's a verse in this passage that contradicts that, particularly those of you who are using one or two other versions. The verse I'm talking about is verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Because doesn't this talk, you might say, not of Gideon's inadequacy, but rather of Gideon's strength. Well, in fact, no, it doesn't. I don't believe it does. This verse isn't actually talking about Gideon's strength at all. It's not, we've already established that Gideon was not at this point in his life a man of strength and courage. No, he was a man filled with a sense of weakness and fear. Rather, the strength that's spoken about here needs to be seen in relation to, in context, with what's actually said in verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You see, he is or he will be a mighty warrior because the Lord is with him. And verse 14 then fits into that context. Go in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? You see, the strength that Gideon is called to rely on is not his own strength, but rather it's the strength that the Lord gives, that God will give as Gideon relies on his promise. Well, maybe this is something, I don't know, that touches on a problem in your life, maybe as an individual. Maybe it touches on problems in our life. 
as a church. This crucial aspect of the call of Gideon. Does our problem lie in that we're not ready to admit yet, we're not ready to give in to the fact of our inadequacy? Not really. We know it in our minds, in our heart of hearts. We know it. We know we're not adequate to do what God calls us to do, but we're not ready to give in to it. We still want to to hold on to that shred of trust in our own ability, our own strength, our own gifts, and what we can do, how we can organize, how we can work and strive. You know, the fact is, the tragedy is, that there is actually a place for our abilities. God wants to use them. He wants to use our skills and organize in all sorts of ways. He wants to use all the different strengths that we have. But this will only happen after we have reached the point where we give in to him and give ourselves in him. For it's only when we learn to truly trust in him. It's only when we trust in his presence and his power. It's only then when we draw on the resources that are ours in Jesus Christ that like Gideon, will be able to live as we're supposed to be living. That is not as the weak, the powerless, and the fearful, but rather as we should live as the sons and daughters of the living God. And it's all about giving in. It all begins at that point where we say to God, I cannot do it on my own. And then draw on his strength and go on to do it in his name. Well, let's look finally and very briefly at the sign given by God. And the sign is all to do with this meal, this offering that's cooked by Gideon and then that's burnt as a burnt offering by the angel of the Lord. I'm not going to elaborate on the details here. Safe to say that this was no bedtime snack that Gideon prepared. I mean, an ephah of flour was approximately 35 pounds of bread. That's what it would produce. But what I want to concentrate a little bit more on is is what was actually the significance of this, of this burnt offering that must have scarred and marked the rock and, and the altar that Gideon then built here. What was the significance of this? Why this? Well, I believe in the in the days to come, you know, when Gideon was maybe tempted again to begin to trust himself. Maybe tempted again to begin to doubt in God. Well, then, this blackened rock, this altar, would serve to him as a reminder of the promise of God and of the saving power of God and of his need to actively trust in him. You see, how we in our lives, how we need the same. Maybe not blackened rocks and altars, but we need reminders built into our life of the promises and power, the adequacy of God, and also of our inadequacy to do His work without Him. Now, what these might be for you, I don't know. For each one of us, I'm sure they'll be a little bit different. Maybe for you, it'll be certain passages of the Bible that have particularly spoken to you in the past. Maybe it'll be the powerful symbolism that we see at the Lord's table. Or maybe it'll be certain incidents in your past life. 
maybe times when you've learned to trust in God. And so you've known great blessing. You've known great deliverance. Or maybe it'll also be times when you've tried to do otherwise, when you've tried to do it in your own strength, and God had to break you down until you got right again with Him. So I want to finish now with a story of a man whose life, I believe, really embodies what I would call this, this Gideon principle. This man, at 18 years old, became a Christian from a Unitarian background. He had gone to, to Boston in the United States. He'd become a clerk in a grocer's shop, and then he was converted. So he sought to join a church, and having interviewed him, the deacons were so concerned that they put him on a, a year-long program to learn basic Christian truth. His Sunday school teacher said of him, that I can truly say that I've seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his. I think the committee of the church met an applicant from membership who seemed more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views and still less to fill any place of public or extended usefulness. A year later, there was barely any improvement. Not only was he ignorant of spiritual truths, but he was barely literate, and his grammar was atrocious. By the way, it's, it's not me, by the way. Anyway, grudgingly though, they accepted him. This young man finally became D.L. Moody, the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. A man whose influence worldwide you cannot overestimate. I mean, in our own country, uh, ICC, which sadly now is no longer in its original kind of existence, but ICC, Carubbers in Edinburgh, both, and many others, owe their beginnings to Moody. You know, it was once said of him by one of his critics, does that man think that he has a monopoly of the Holy Spirit? The reply a friend gave was this, no, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly of Moody, all of Moody that there is. You see, Moody, I believe, learned the Gideon principle. He realized his own inadequacy, and he threw himself on the God who alone is adequate. I say, may we do the same. For while we might not, probably won't, become Moody's or Gideon's, God has things that he wants to do, real works he wants to do through every single person here. That's God's promise. And it's a promise that will not fail if we trust it and live it out. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your power, your grace, your presence. Thank you that you're unchanging. What you promised to do in your people in the past, that promise remains today. May we believe in it, grab hold of it by faith, and then live it out daily in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.